0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Anyhow, moving on to the Gospel of John, Uh, we've talked about before, as we've been, we're a few weeks into this series, how the Gospel of John is just written differently than the, other, uh, than the other Gospels. I just remembered that I have a bunch of Bible verse slides. Are you ready to run with those, Livy, or do I need to? Okay, all right. Well, let me know if it doesn't work out, and I need to. Okay, you're the best. All right. Um, the Gospel of John is different than the other Gospels because it, it has a lot less stories in it, a lot less um, uh, what what John did, what the author did, was eliminate a whole bunch of details uh, of all these different things that happened and really try to zero in and focus on specific stories that he seemed to think were really important. And so we'll really see evidence of his sort of laser focus on specific things as we get into chapter 2. We started off chapter 2, and it was Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana, the water into wine. We did that a couple weeks ago when we were all together. And we go right from his first miracle to, uh, as we pick things up in John chapter 2, verse 13, we go right to a time of Jesus being in Jerusalem during the Passover. And so we know that things probably happened between Jesus' first miracle and this thing that he did in Jerusalem. I mean, one thing we know is at this point in the story, Jesus only has like four or five disciples, and we know he ended up with 12, so we know know that that happened. We know all kinds of things happened. But for whatever reason, John, who was writing an account of Jesus' ministry, decided that after the first miracle, the next big point is Jesus in the temple at Passover. And so, um, in some ways, I think one of the nice things about the Gospel of John is we know the fluff has been cut out, and it's the important things that are there. And if, if nothing else, it, it, as we move from the first miracle to Jesus in the temple, we know this is a story that we want to pay attention to. Um, so let's pray. Lord, as we just dive into your word, we're just mindful that you have things you're wanting to speak to us today. Lord, would you open the ears of every heart in this space to hear the things that you want to say? Would you open our minds to grasp the concepts uh, that you need us to understand? Would you open our hearts to receive the teaching, the correction, the truth that you want to bring into our lives? We do not want to be unchanged after this time but speak to our hearts. Speak something new to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to pick it up here in John chapter 2, verse 13. And the author writes, When it was almost time for the Passover, the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves, and others were sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip, Verse 15, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold the doves, he said, get these out of here and stop turning my father's house into a market. In verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. If you're familiar with this story, there's maybe a couple things that you notice right away. Um, one, this is this is like one of the only times that Jesus just sort of loses his mind and goes, you know, violent on everybody. And and uh, and I feel like sometimes, like in my mind, I sanitize the scene. Right, like Jesus walks in calmly and looks around and is like, "This will never do. You guys need to leave." But I mean, John Wright said he makes a whip out of some cords. I've, I've, I've never made a whip. I know maybe some of you grew up in generations where you, you know, you, you uh, maybe had somebody make a whip to whip you, or or you had to pull over the car and pick a, a branch off. <laughs> you know, I um, thankfully I never experienced any of those in my own life. But, um, but I've heard stories. Uh, we had a dedicated uh, instrument of correction in our house that. Nobody had to fashion it. It was just there in the drawer. Um, Just had to get a new one when it broke. That was all. Um, Anyhow, Jesus, I mean, he walks into the temple. He sees what's going on. He makes a whip, and he starts driving the animals out. I don't know. Maybe some people are getting struck, too. He's turning tables over. He's chasing everyone out, and he's saying, you guys have turned this house into a market Another thing you might notice, especially if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, is this gospel is recording it differently than the other gospels. In, in, in the other gospels, Jesus goes into the temple during Holy Week. It's after the and entry. It's one of the last things that he does before you know, going to the cross is cleansing the temple. That's the heading a lot of times. Jesus cleanses the temple. Um, and yet in this story, this is happening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is the one, this is the first thing that. He does, remember in the story of the wedding at Cana where he turned the water into wine, he said at that point, I don't really want to be out yet. My time hasn't come. And then we move to this. This is the first thing that John records him doing when he says, when, you know, when he's officially in ministry now. And so some people will look at that and be like, yeah, see, there's another contradiction in the Bible. Uh, this whole things, this whole book isn't really true. And, and that's what their takeaway is from it. My takeaway is Jesus did this more than once. He went to the temple, and he was overcome with zeal. He was consumed with zeal, and he tore the place up. I mean, you just imagine if somebody came in here and was so offended by what we were doing that they began to turn things over. It wouldn't fly. We wouldn't allow it. I mean, we would put a stop to it. You wouldn't even get one table. Well, you probably get one table turned over, but then that would be that, Right? But here is Jesus somehow walking through the temple, causing this, you know, pandemonium and havoc, and he somehow gets away with it, and, and the place has changed. Um, what does it mean that he's consumed with anger at what he saw? And what does it mean that in the whole record of Jesus' ministry, him going into the temple is the only time that we see this kind of a response? I think of other times in his life or in his ministry that it just it would have made a lot of sense for him to, to get angry and get violent. What does it mean that this is the scene where he does it? Uh, we see that in verse 17, that word zeal. And, and the Greek word is zealos or zelos. Um, I guarantee you I said it just like an ancient Greek would have. Um, but the word picture is, is boiling water. And the idea is, you know, that's coming out of it. The idea is, this is there's there's some real angle, anger boiling in there. This is pretty serious. This person has really lost it. Um, in the in the scripture, when we're meant to interpret the world, the word, sorry, positively, it's translated as zeal. You know, righteous anger, zeal, passion. Um, when, when we're supposed to interpret it negatively, it's written as like jealousy or envy. Um, interestingly, this word makes the list of big sins that you're not supposed to do. You know, every, every now and then in the New Testament, you have these lists of sins that if you do this, you won't inherit the kingdom. And, and we all read over the list and, and, and uh, we usually probably ignore about half of them because they all apply to us. We're like, well, that couldn't that couldn't mean that. But this word is in there. And yet here is Jesus, same word boiling over. Have you ever been moved to anger like that? Have you ever lost your mind? I'm sure any of you who are parents probably have. Any of you who have driven in traffic probably have. You can relate to these things. I was telling someone recently that my my ability to move heavy objects now, uh, when I'm when I'm maybe working on a house project or something like that, and I'm. I've got a heavy object to move. My ability to move it depends on how angry I am right now. If the project's not going well, I can move a refrigerator by myself. If I'm not that mad, then I'm like, oh, I should really get some help on this. And I ask for help. Um, we know what it's like to boil over with this kind of anger. And probably all of us who, you know, are part to the human experience, which is hopefully all of us in the room. Any aliens in the room? Raise your hands. Oh, thank goodness. Um, That would really mess with my theology. Anyhow, um, we know what it's like, and yet here's a picture of Jesus that that I think really is something to reflect on. It's so interesting to me that when John is, you know, years later, he's writing the Gospel of John. He was there when it happened. He's deciding what's important. What do people need to know about Jesus' life? And when he reflects on Jesus going into the temple and losing his mind, He's like, he, re, he remembers Psalm 69. That's the verse that he brings up. He says, the disciples remembered. It was written of him that zeal for my, my father's house will consume me. Um, and that's what John keys into. He, he, he writes that into the narrative. He says, this is, this is what we remember. This is what we tied. Psalm 69 is, is this messianic psalm. It's written about a servant of God who is crying out to God in the midst of persecution He feels like he's just drowning in opposition and persecution. He's crying out to God to save him. And it's interesting that John's like, in that moment, he's connecting Jesus to that kind of a sentiment. Here's this servant of God looking at the world around. He cannot believe what he sees. And he's crying out to God. He's consumed by it. And, of course, Jesus is consumed to action. The Gospel of John actually brings up this same psalm, Psalm 69, when Jesus is on the cross. The, the Jesus asked for, uh, when he was on the cross, he, he said, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. And they offered him sour wine or vinegar to drink. And that was right out of Psalm 69 as well, that this would happen. It's interesting how in these crucial moments of Jesus' life, suffering on the cross, and and you know the internal suffering, the boiling inside of what he saw in the temple, in both of these moments, um, oh, Amber alert. Oh, gosh. Oh, my phone's not making that noise. It's somebody else's now. Okay. All right. Um, this is what John pulls out. And it's so interesting, too, because you'll see this a lot in the Gospels and in the New Testament authors, uh, they reflect on what Jesus did and then they look back at their Hebrew scriptures and they just they see him everywhere. It's like hindsight is 20-20. This is all a, a, a big, beautiful, connected story and they're like, there he is and in Psalm 69. There he is back in the garden. He's everywhere. And this idea that there would be a suffering servant who would sacrifice himself, even when we as Christians go back and read the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we see Jesus everywhere. Especially if we have a little bit of of training in how to read scripture. We see him everywhere. And sometimes it's so obvious that we think to ourselves, how could the religious leaders in Jesus's day have missed it? How did they see Jesus overturning the stuff in the temple and, and going crazy? How did they not see Psalm 69 in that moment and be like, whoa, this is the Messiah right here, and submit to him then? I think it's not fair to judge him because we. We have the benefit of hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and 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 we also just know that. And if you've ever if you've ever expected God to do something a certain way, only to find out after it's all worked out that that wasn't at all what you know. He he ended up working in a totally different way. Then you know what I'm talking about. Where God just doesn't do things the way that we do things, and it's okay to be in a moment as a human being saying, "I don't understand," and to trust that, As we move a little further in the story, as you get to the next chapter of your life, maybe you'll look back and things will start to make sense. You'll start to see Jesus everywhere, just like the New Testament authors did when they looked back at the Hebrew Scriptures. So here, we see Jesus pushed to the edge. He sees the the buying and the selling. Uh, Scholars who look back and try to explain what was going on there uh, oftentimes default to the argument that, that what was going on in that temple at that time was it wasn't like a a youth group bake sale. Uh, I used to attend a church where one of the older guys that attended there, every time we did a fundraiser for the youth, he he brought up Jesus cleansing the temple. He was like, this is absolutely wrong. He never turned any tables over over it. He didn't have that strong of feelings. But he made sure that we all knew that he did not think it was a good idea that any buying or selling would be happening at church. We're like, it's donation. It's not buying and selling. Um, This isn't what was going on. Uh, People were coming from all over the region to the temple, especially during Passover. Jewish people's religion obligated to come and bring a sacrifice to the temple, bring offerings to the temple. And that was the way that that they connected to God. And what had happened is that the Jewish leaders, the power brokers who who, were entrusted with management of the temple had set up a marketplace there and set up a system where if you came with your sacrifice, nothing that you brought was going to be good enough. The only sacrifices that could be accepted were the sacrifices that we had here for sale at the temple. Uh, Maybe you brought your, your lamb that you had raised yourself and brought it up for the offering for Passover, and you had to bring it to the priest for inspection, and the priest would look at the lamb and say, you know what, uh, this lamb's got a freckle on its ear. It's, it's not going to be suitable for sacrifice. But good news, lambs are for sale at the table over there. And then you head over there, and what you thought a lamb cost is not what a lamb costs here at the temple. It's sort of like going to the grocery store in 2022. You thought this is the price, but you just showed up, and whoa, the price is way more than I thought it was going to be. But what choice do you have? You're here to connect with God, and so you've got you've to pay the price. Um, and by the way, the money changers are there because, you know, we can't take Roman coin at the temple. We can't take pagan money at the temple. They have their own currency, and, uh, and so you've got to change money to, uh, to buy things in the temple. And, and any of you who have ever been hosed on an exchange rate in a foreign country know that sometimes you think, I thought I was giving you a $50 bill, and I thought this was what it would equal in your currency. And, and then you realize that they are taking a fee off, and actually, um, this isn't working so well. It uh, doesn't happen as much in a digital age. That's nice. You know, I can take my debit card, and Red Canoe will make sure that I have a favorable exchange rate wherever I go, thanks to Visa. Um, so this is part of this system where Jesus comes in, and he sees this, where these people have created a monopoly on access to God. And they're using that monopoly to, to extort and to price gouge the people of God, saying, you, have, you know, you want to be close to God? This is what it's going to take. And if you don't do this, then you're going to be far from God and cut off and all of that. Um, Jesus sees all of that happening in the place that is supposed to be the accessible center of devotional life for the Lord's people. The Jewish people are commanded to come there, but they're also invited to come the door is supposed to be open to them to come and to worship the Lord and Jesus sees in in that place where people are supposed to be coming the the price gouging the extortion the barriers being built up and people being kept away now the other thing as we consider temple is 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 that we really want to our understanding of temple it's it's more than just like a building in jerusalem somewhere there's there's a bigger that's supposed to be connected to the whole story of scripture as well and so when we're when we're thinking of temple we really want to think of it through the hebrew tradition that we got the temple from the temple didn't just magically appear on the hill one day and everyone decided that was where we worship god it's connected to a longer story it's connected to the the tabernacle that god commanded moses to build where Israel had just been released out of slavery and they're trying to figure out how to be the nation of God's people. And one of the things that God tells Moses, he gives him instructions for this tent that's going to be built. And this tent is going to be the meeting place between God and the nation of Israel. And the thing about this tent, the way that it's set up and all the decorations in it, is that this tent where Israel's is supposed to meet God is also pointing to something. The temple points to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is pointing all the way back to the beginning of the story to a garden. The Garden of Eden, the story of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. This place that God created where he dwelt with humanity, where he was with his people. This good place, this beautiful place, this place that was, you know, creation in its good and pristine form place where God would dwell. This is what temple is pointing back to. And so this is far less about a building in Jerusalem. And this is far more about a place where God dwells with his people. Jesus uses the phrase, my father's house there in the verse. And, and, um, and you know, it's tra- the word's translated house, but it's a word that means dwelling or can even mean household it it, and when we when we throw the idea of household in there when you think of house you think of your address right my address 141 viewpoint drive when you think of household who do you think of i think of my people you know when i'm talking about household it's more relational um we, we we're familiar with this idea when we talk about the difference between a house and a home right and so the original greek language is it's leaning into that reality my father's house isn't talking about an address. My father's house is couching it in a little bit more relational language. My father's home. My father's household. Again, we're not talking about the address. We're talking about the people. Jesus says, my father's house, his dwelling place, is, you've turned it into a marketplace. Um. Moving on. Mm-hmm. All right. So the whole idea of marketplace. I shared how there was, uh, I used to attend a church of a, a, a dear old saint who felt that every time there was uh, a bake sale, fundraiser for the youth, that we were profaning the house of God. Um, and, and I think when I, when I hear Jesus' rebuke, especially here because he talks about how the house is supposed to be a house of prayer and the other gospel narratives about him cleansing the temple later on in his ministry. But here, the rebuke is it's a marketplace. And, and I, I wrestle with that phrase when I think about our modern context for ministry and this idea of, you know, what is a marketplace? Well, it's a place where, you know, capitalists go to get their needs met, right? It's a place that we really look to to satisfy the needs of society, um, and, th- and yet Jesus is saying, my father's house has been turned into this thing. And, and I start to reflect on modern church life and all the things that we do and, and especially conversations that we might have. of Like, how do we make Sunday, meal, Sunday morning valuable for people? Because if people are coming and they're not getting something of value, they, they're probably not going to come very long, right? I mean, if, if you showed up every week and hated it, you'd, there's plenty of other options out there. <laughs> go, go find somewhere else. And then and then and then we talk about like church management and 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 oftentimes we're applying modern business principles to you know try to be good stewards of the resources that God gives us. And anyhow, this whole idea of marketplace seems to permeate so much of our communal religious life together. And so I'm wrestling with that a little bit this week. Like, what is it? Is, is this even okay? What would Jesus do if he walked in here, right? I mean, would he see the lights and the screens and the tables and the cushioned chairs? And would he be like throwing stuff around? Or would he be like, I'm so glad to be here with you? Um, And maybe some of you don't ever wrestle with this kind of stuff. But these are the kinds of things that, oh, no, what have we done? What would Jesus do if he came in here? I do not want him to make a whip in Renewal City Church. (laughs) I do not want to see that. And I think this rebuke is somewhat relevant for us because so much of our life can revolve around this idea of marketplace. Now, I don't, I hope, I don't think that Jesus would be grabbing a whip if he came in here. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with, with, you know, trying to apply some business principles to manage church finances well. or, Or there's nothing wrong with trying to make Sunday morning a valuable experience for you. I think where the the tipping point is, is when what we are doing or our embrace of these different principles start to become things that that keep people away. Start to become barriers between people and God and barriers between uh, us and each other. Um, Because if you think about garden, if Jesus' goal is the garden, the garden represents humanity unified. It represents unified with God and unified with each other. Uh, the you know Adam and Eve the the two became one flesh Uh, what God has joined together let no one separate and then the fall kind of undoes all of that and disrupts that and I think part of what had Jesus so moved when he came into the temple is this is the place where things are supposed to be getting put back together and yet this is the place where in the name of you know profiteering and greed and power and all that this is a place where the, the brokenness and the separation and the, and the breaking of things is just being perpetuated. One of the most profound lines in the New Testament is in first Corinthians chapter three and and this is a line that is a game changer in terms of concept wise because Paul is writing to a church that's dis working through disunity. the church is broken apart and um and it's not a unified church. And Paul writes to them and brings up this idea of temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you all together are that temple. That idea of... If you destroy God's temple, God's going to destroy you. In my mind, that's another, like, that's another sort of rarity, right? Like, I, what? If you destroy God's temple, he's going to forgive you. I would rather say that, but <laughs> that's what Scripture says. If you destroy God's temple, he's going to destroy you. This is a little bit out there, right? This is like angry Jesus with the whip in the temple. This is pushing us a little bit outside. Wow, God is really serious about this. What is he serious about? These people who are tearing apart the body of Christ over doctrinal differences. He's serious about his people being unified. I imagine Jesus' disciples after the scene in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus clears the temple, you know, they go to wherever they're staying for the night, they're sitting around the fire, and Jesus is maybe cooled off some, he maybe he throws a whip on the fire. And the disciples are just looking at each other like, that just happened? What was that? Wow, we've never seen Jesus quite like that. If you destroy God's temple, he'll destroy you. If, if, if your presence in the meeting place where God is supposed to be meeting with his people, if your presence there is something that is tearing things apart, God has that kind of strong presence reaction to it. He will defend his people. Paul isn't the only one of the early apostles who had strong feelings about God's temple and God's desire to protect it that really echoes the story of Jesus in the temple. James chapter 4, the apostles writing to the church and he asks them in 4 verse 1, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Why aren't you all unified? Why is there contention in the family of God? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. And you do not have because you don't ask God. And and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You're asking so that you may spend What you get on your own pleasures. Why do I want what I want? Why am I willing to contend with others? Why am I willing to fight with others for what I want, what I want? This is one of those like, Lord, search my heart. Search the motives of my heart. Deliver me from whatever this is, this marketplace mentality time, I want to move down to verse 5 in James. He says, do you think that scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He gives us more grace, and that's why the scriptures say that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Then in verse 7, James writes this to the church. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And come near to God, and he will come near to you. In this phrase, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, I really think that our minds are supposed to think garden again. What happened in the garden? The man and the woman were tempted. They didn't resist the devil. They listened. They didn't submit to God. They submitted to their desires, and they rebelled against God. Then, Instead of coming near to God, they hid from God in shame. And when God came near to them, the man threw the woman under the bus, and we have humanity disunified. And Scripture continues to point us to this story. It tells that story over and over again. God is trying to bring us together under Him, and sin continues to divide and push us apart. The reason that Jesus came was to rewrite what it means to be human. Our destiny would no longer be one where we submit to temptation, to evil desires, and end up rebelling against God, but our destiny would be one where we submit to God and we resist the desires of our own heart. I imagine that there was a process where what was going on in the temple became okay with everyone who had anything to do with the temple. You know, how many Jewish people walked into the temple, saw the buying and the selling, saw the system that was set up to profiteer off of people needing to bring their sacrifices? How many people walked in that temple and said, well, this is just how life is. This is just how life is. How could it be that the religious leaders would have, you know, the keepers of the scriptures, the ones who preserved it, would look at a system like that and say, well, this is just how it is. One, some of them had something to gain from it, so they were happy that it was how it was. Two, sometimes we just accept certain realities because we live in a broken world. There's the, we, don't, we don't have a vision for it being different. I think one of the greatest tragedies in my own heart that I've wrestled with this week is, you know, a bunch of kids get killed in a school again. And in my heart, I'm like, and this is just how it is. This is just how it is. I don't know what to do. I guess that's just part of, you know, having a passport As we live in a society where this happens. As kingdom people... We're people who are supposed to walk into temple-like situations and say, this is not how it's supposed to be. This does not look like the garden. This does not look like the meeting place between God and humanity. We can't, we can't take it. And I, I have no idea what the solution is. It seems like every time you know something like this happens in our society, we really quickly tear off into our, you know, little group that agrees with how we would solve the problem and we blame it on everybody else and we're never a part of it and I think the reality of this situation is you know if you've got an American passport you're a part of this problem this is our country what are we going to do when Jesus walked into the temple he didn't look at it and say well I'm not a part of this problem these people set up this mess I'll just walk out and I'll build a new temple over here he was like, This is my father's house. And my father's house wasn't meant to be this way. And he did something about it. The New Testament authors understood temple as a meeting place between God and humanity. And then the game changer was in what Paul said that you yourselves are the temple of God. And when the language of the New Testament reminds us that we ourselves are the temple of God, It it intentionally uh, uh, mentions, and the linguistic structure makes a point of that it's us together. So on the one hand, I myself am the temple of God. That's 100% true. My body is a temple. But more true than that is the fact that we are the temple of God together. And we get to experience that when we gather on Sunday or if you gather with people throughout the week. When you spend time with other believers, we experience the reality that we together as the temple is more true than I by myself am the temple. We also are meant to experience the reality that that in that temple, it's a place of restoration. It's a place where a broken world is being made whole again. And so our gathering together is meant to uh, proclaim that truth to the world. Our gatherings are no place for selfish ambition. They're no place for profiteering. They're a place where God means for us to be together, a part of the restoration of the garden. We're called to be minist- uh, to a ministry of that reconciliation, to a ministry of that restoration here in the world. We together are called to that ministry of, of renewal. What Christ did was try to undo all that had been broken and restore it or what God was doing through Christ, was undoing all that and restoring it. Jesus is so passionate about this truth that he's he's clearing the temple, he's cleansing the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and he's cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry. He sees that something needs to be done. I think for us, ourselves, as we reflect on the temple that is inside of us, we need to approach the cleansing of that with the same kind of zeal, with the same kind of... Of, you know, ruthlessness that Christ demonstrated. Starting with ourselves and as a community starting together. And This is one of the reasons why I feel like it's so appropriate to come in and, and embrace a heart of repentance this morning. First together saying, Lord, there is something wrong with us. I'm not going to point my fingers at people in Texas. I'm not going to point my fingers at, you know, there's something wrong with us. And we need to be Delivered. We believe the Spirit working in us as a community is, is uh, the vehicle through which God helps to bring about that change. Um, one of the things that Danny shared this weekend, last weekend at our retreat, was that we, are, we get wounded in relationship. I mean, it, it's, we're, we're social human beings. God created us to relate to one another, and, and you know, we're all broken, and so bad things, bad things happen. God has chosen that it's in relationship that healing happens as well. The Spirit working in us as a community is what comes in and cleanses you know, the society, cleanses the temple. Uh, we talked about how it's, it's more true that the Spirit dwells in all of us. It's true the Spirit dwells in us individually. It's more true that He dwells in all of us together. And one of the practical ways that we try to implement that in our gatherings is to give us time to discuss things together, uh, believing that we have... Uh, much to learn from each other, and that when we take time to just have a little more in-depth conversation, we're sort of leaning into that truth that that g- is more true that God dwells in us together than in us individually. And so, um, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss some questions that have been prepared for this message. The hope is that my perspective can be enriched by yours, and we can be an encouragement to one another. And then we'll come together at the end of the service to the Lord's table uh, to close things. So. Um, There should be a QR code going up. If you're sitting in the rows, just feel free to move around a little bit. Gather with some people. Um, If you're at a table and there's not a lot of people there, move around a little bit. Um, Take the relational risk to connect, believing that. In doing that, you can tap into this truth that we all together are the body of Christ.